This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. to be back and uh, to see you all tonight. Uh, so good to see you and thanks, thanks for being here for Miracles of Jesus. Uh, great to see you. Uh, we have our class notes. If anybody needs a copy, we have plenty of copies. Uh, it's great to see you tonight, Cindy. Thanks, brother. It's great to see you. How's Andrea? She's really getting along good. I'm going to take a drive in the bar. Great, great. Let her drive. Great, thanks, Dave. If anybody needs uh, some notes, just raise your hands and, uh, and Dave can get this to you. Sandy ran off some more copies for us today. I'd like to say we don't have a book table in the back, but right on the counter of the Welcome Center, we have about five or six uh, books that are fairly new to the Good News family and uh, uh, just sharing them on a donation basis. Um, thank you, Dave. One is called The Greatest of These, and it's an exposition of 1 Corinthians 15 and talks about uh, agape love. Uh, we have... Uh, two volumes out of a three-volume set on Philippians. Uh, we have an introduction to the book of Philippians and an exposition of 1.1 through uh, 2.11, and that's entitled The Furtherance of the Gospel. And then we have volume two of Philippians, which overlaps a little bit with that. That's um, 2.1 through 3.9, and that's called Even the Death of the Cross. We're working on volume three right now, which will be the final volume. Sandy, it's so good to have you tonight. Um, and um, we uh, also have uh, three studies of the Gospels uh, that I think are new to the Good News family. Matthew is the portrait of a king. Uh, Mark is the towel and the trowel. Uh, Luke is the open arms of the Father. And then we have a book that you are familiar with, but I thought I'd bring some copies anyway on tremendous truths about trials. So they're back on the counter there and they'd love to have you look them over. They have a plan of salvation on the back so you can share them as a track too. And uh, we just uh, love to have you look at those and hope maybe they can be of some blessing. We've been doing this ministry now for about 48 years and, uh, and uh, it's just so good to have a chance to share these with you again at Good News. I'd like to pass this attendance sheet around, and uh, I know with us being a little spread out, this might be a little inconvenient, but it really helps me to get the names down and, and have a record of your attendance. Um, let me see. Brother, Brother Wagner, if you could, thank you. Thank you, appreciate that. Thanks. And uh, in your syllabus notes, uh, if you, we're, we're actually in the second of uh, four lectures in the notes. Uh, asking questions about Bible miracles and the miracles of Jesus. And in that second section, we're on page two. In that second section that deals with questions, uh, we're on page two. I'd like to ask Brother Gene Sayre if uh, he would ask God's blessing on our study and on all of our classes.
Thanks, Gene. Last week, we made the point that the birth of a child is a wonderful thing. David said, I am fearfully and wonderfully made, and that my soul knoweth right well. And we said that in popular Christian speech, we'll often refer to the birth of a child as a miracle. Well, the birth of a child is certainly a great act of God that points to God. Every time I hear a newborn baby cry or touch a leaf or see the sky, then I know why I believe. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of the enemy, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. We talked about creation being a great work of God. If you can believe the first page of the Bible, you should have no trouble believing any miracle in the book. If you should have no trouble believing that Jesus walked on the water, if he put the water there in the first place. Amen. And so creation is a mighty act of God. We also said that amazing grace, conversion, is an awesome work of God. Sometimes we'll say that the greatest thing that could ever happen to you is that you get saved. Sometimes we'll say that's the greatest miracle of all. And in a sense, that's true. We said that fulfilled prophecy was not a miracle in the normal sense that we use the word miracle, but fulfilled prophecy is a miracle of knowledge, how God could give prophecies hundreds of years in advance and they be fulfilled. Stephen Charnock in his book on the existence and attributes of God said, the foreknowledge of God is the uh, great fire uh, from which every prophet lights his torch and gives predictions of the future. And so we often use the word miracle in a broad sense to mean a great act of God, like childbirth or creation or fulfilled prophecy or getting saved. And it's okay to use the word miracle of these things if you're talking about something great that only God can do and how beautifully you see God in them. But when the Bible uses the word miracle or related words like signs or the works that God gave Jesus to do, while these are great, wonderful works of God, these are not in the strict biblical sense of how the Bible uses the word miracle, a miracle. And so we asked the question last week, what is a miracle? And uh, I have a definition that I think will work pretty well for us. Now, I relied on my memory when I prepared these notes. I remembered a definition I got of a miracle back in graduate school, and I put it down the best I could remember it. And it wasn't too far off. But as I was looking through some of my various notes in the last few weeks, I came across the original definition. It's from a man that I think Dr. Coles might remember. His name is Marshall Neal. For many years, and, and, and Sister Jan, for many years, the head of the Bible department at Bob Jones University, um, uh, actually the head of the Department of Religion at Bob Jones University. Uh, he was a big help to me, especially in my uh, dissertation uh, and my, my graduate work. 
but I had the privilege of having Dr. Neal for a graduate level course called Systematic Theology. And it was in that course that Dr. Neal gave us this definition of a miracle. And so since I found the original definition, I'm going to use that rather than the one I tried to remember uh, when I um, put it in the syllabus. So uh, this is Dr. Neal, but, it, but the, what you have in the syllabus is close. When Dr. Neal speaks of a Bible miracle, he says it involves four parts. I'd like to give those to you. A miracle is one, an extraordinary event. An extraordinary event. You know, there are things that happen every day that are beautiful. Great works of God that we should cherish, like the dawning of a day. Some diamond rings could be dazzling and beautiful. Some people can afford very expensive ones, some can't. I remember I was driving along in my car on Interstate 85, and I was listening to a music station, and I got a kick out of the commercial, and so did the, uh, so did the disc jockey. He said that there was a jewelry company that was offering a special deal. They were offering matching his and her diamond rings, and each one was only $100,000 a piece. <laughs> but they said that if you got a matching set, they would throw the golden casing of the diamonds in free of charge. And the uh, radio announcement said, oh, with a deal like that, we're all going to have to beat out the door to get it. You know, how can we, how can we uh, uh, you know, not take advantage of that, you know, uh, as if that was well within our range, you know. But uh, you think of how beautiful a diamond ring is. But what is a diamond compared to the dawn? The best things in life are free. A man might not be able to afford an expensive diamond ring, but he can walk out of his house and see the glorious dawn, which is even so much more beautiful. The best things in life are free. And when a man, a man might not live in a mansion and uh, have beautiful artwork on his walls and all of that, but when he opens the door of his tiny cottage and walks out into the vast cathedral of creation, he can be overwhelmed with all the glory. The best things in life are free. That's especially true of spiritual things. Whosoever will let him take of the water of life freely. So creation's wonderful, and even though it happens regularly, like the dawn every morning, uh, it's still special. But a miracle is something that doesn't happen on a regular basis. It's extraordinary. Uh, the second part of the miracle uh, definition, Dr. Neal said, is it occurs in the external world. It occurs in the external world, uh, the physical world around us. Conversion is a great act of grace, a great supernatural work, but it's a spiritual work inside a person. Miracles take place in the arena of creation, but creation itself is not spoken of as a miracle in the Bible. What takes place within creation is spoken of as a miracle. Uh, the birth of a baby is a wonderful thing, but that would not be called a miracle in the Bible sense. Now, if you talk about the virgin birth, that's a miracle in the Bible sense. Uh, so fulfilled prophecy is a miracle of knowledge, but when the Bible speaks of miracles, it's speaking more of miracles of power. 
So it occurs in the external world, and three, it is wrought by the immediate power of God. It's wrought by the immediate power of God. You see, when God made you and made the world around you, he sustains and works in every one of your physical activities. You cannot take a single breath without God. You cannot take a single step without God. If you start using a cane, you become more aware of the fact that even taking a step can be a blessing. Um, we, we have no surety that we'll have another beat of our heart. If I uh, lift up my hand, to, if I take, reach out my hand to lift up my Bible, I need God sustaining my hand to do that. He works through all the different activities of life. Um, uh, the biblical scholars call the term concurrence. Uh, they'll talk about things like that when God gives man free will, if a man's gonna commit a murder and pull the trigger, it's his decision to pull the trigger, but God still has to give him the power to pull it. But that doesn't make God the author of sin. It just means he sets up a world and helps man up to a point to follow through on what he's gonna do, up to a point. Uh, and, uh, but everything we do, we need the concurrent power of God to do, including walk out of this room. But, and childbirth is um, something that God's put into our world and into the natural cycle. Uh, when a woman gives birth to a child, that's a beautiful thing. And uh, God is behind that, and God gives the fruit of the womb. But the Bible doesn't call that a miracle. That happens all the time. But now something that would be a very special birth, like Elizabeth being old and unable to bear children, and now it's a sixth month with her that was called barren. That's a miracle. And that leads up to an even greater miracle of a virgin giving birth to a child uh, as the angel Gabriel is speaking to Mary about that in Luke chapter one. Um, and then the fourth element of a miracle is it's intended for a sign. You see, a miracle involves the immediate power of God where God directly uh, infuses special power to bring about something that's beyond the normal course of nature and life. And then it's intended for a sign. A miracle always points beyond itself to a great spiritual truth that God wants us to get our attention on. It's not very good grammar, get our attention on. It's been said that a preposition is something you should never end a sentence with. <laughs> uh, uh, but anyway, but I think these four ingredients are, um, are uh, part of what a, the Bible calls a miracle. For example, take the virgin birth. It's an extraordinary event. It's only happened once in history. It happened in the external world. It happened in Mary's body. The Holy Ghost came upon her. The power of the highest overshadowed her. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of her shall be called the Son of God. And then it was wrought by the immediate power of God. It wasn't simply that God was working through normal human processes, as wonderful as that is. No, God directly did a work in Mary's body to bring that about, totally apart from the instrumentality of a man. And then it's intended for a sign. 
In fact, when the virgin birth was predicted in Isaiah chapter 7, God asked King Ahaz, he said, ask a sign of the Lord thy God. Ask it either in the heaven above or in the depth below. And hypocritically, Ahaz said, uh, I will not ask, neither will I tempt the Lord. Well, he wanted to show him that the house of David would continue to survive and he would deliver him, he would deliver Judah from the alliance of Syria and Israel that was bearing down upon him. But Ahaz was really hoping to get help from the Assyrians, which was a big mistake. He was hoping to get help from the Assyrians and he didn't want, you know, uh, God to do it his way. He thought he had a better plan. And he hypocritically said, I won't tempt the Lord. And Isaiah, speaking with the sanctified exasperation of God, said, uh, is it a small thing, O house of David, that you would weary men? <laughs> but will you weary my God also? Since you won't choose a sign, God will pick a sign for you. And what a sign. <laughs> Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Uh, let's take, again, the feeding of the 5,000. It was an extraordinary event. How often do you have 5,000 people, men plus women and children, fed with a little lad's lunch? It was extraordinary. It happened in the external world. Jesus took common elements and multiplied them. It was an act of the immediate power of God. Now, when a farmer goes out and plants seeds and eventually watches over them and cares for the crop and then harvests it. God's still working through all of that as he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust to bring about the harvest in due season. But in the case of the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus's divine power was immediately released to make uh, those loaves multiply in a way that could not be accounted for through the normal processes of nature. And then it was intended for a sign. In the early verses of John 6, you've got the feeding of the 5,000, but then it leads into his great bread of life discourse, where he shows that if I could multiply a little lad's lunch like this, this points to the fact that I'm the bread of life, I'm the true bread. I can satisfy you on a much deeper level than even those loaves satisfied the hungry multitude. I am the bread of life. Uh, he that cometh to me shall never believe, he that cometh of me shall never hunger, he that believeth of me shall never thirst. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. And uh, the miracle, the feeding of the 5,000 points to Christ as the true manna that came down from heaven to give his flesh for the life of the world. And when we think of what a miracle is, it just makes us want to praise God all the more. Like the children of Israel praise God on the victory side of the Red Sea when they sit in the Song of Moses in Exodus 15, 11, who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, 
doing wonders. So I think that when you look at how the Bible uses the word miracle or related words like signs or works or wonders, I think that the definition that Dr. Neal gave uh, is very helpful. It's an extraordinary event occurring in the external world, wrought by the immediate power of God and intended for a sign. A follow-up question is number six. Do miracles violate the laws of nature? Do miracles violate the laws of nature? If a man jumps off top of the Empire State Building, is he violating the law of gravity? Or is he illustrating the law of gravity? <laughs> Heard years ago about a man named Silly Billy who jumped off top of the Empire State Building. He did it because he, forgive me, he wanted to show his girlfriend that he had guts. <laughs> Another reason he did it is he wanted to make a hit on Broadway. But yeah, he doesn't, he doesn't violate the law of gravity, he illustrates it. Do miracles violate God's natural laws so that God's in contradiction with himself? Yeah, not natural laws. Some people talk about miracles can't be true because they would violate God's natural laws. I don't believe that that's a good way to look at it. Um, there are two basic kinds of miracles. One type of miracle intensifies the laws of nature. It greatly intensifies the laws of nature, like the eighth plague in Egypt. Uh, Egypt had struggled with locust plagues before, but never one like the eighth plague. It was the greatest locust plague in their history, and it had miraculous elements connected with it, like God predicted when it would start, God predicted when it would stop, uh, and he controlled everything. But one of the elements of the locust plague is they never had anything like that. Uh, the, the land was like the Garden of Eden before them, and it was like a howling bleak wilderness after the locust left, uh, if I may borrow some phraseology from the book of Joel. Um, so that was an intensification of nature, a miraculous intensification of nature. We've had hailstones before. Some of them are pretty prominent. Uh, I think they have a picture of a hailstone somewhere. It's supposed to be about the biggest on record. It's like the size of a softball. But in the last great bowl judgment of Revelation 16, 17 through 21, there will be pieces of hail falling out of the sky that weigh a talent. I think the Greek talent is 86 pounds, if I remember. I think the Hebrew is 125. We can't be real precise, but here you have hailstones raining down out of the sky, weighing about 100 pounds apiece. That's miraculous. That goes way beyond any recorded record. Um, uh, it's connected with what the book of Revelation calls so mighty an earthquake and so great. It actually has islands sinking into the ocean and 
uh, mountains crumbling into plains, we're very close to the end when that plague hits the world. But God will shorten those end days to seven years. He says if he didn't, Matthew 24, 22, no flesh should be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. It's hard to imagine human life going on much longer with judgments like that ending the tribulation period. But then some miracles transcend nature. They transcend nature, like the floating axe head in 1 Kings 6. The man of God's, uh, the, 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 well, the, uh, one of the sons of the prophets, he's helping to build a larger quarter for uh, the uh, seminary students. And uh, the axe head comes loose from the handle and uh, falls into the water. And he says, alas, master, it's borrowed. They were, they, they were like many Bible college students. Money was tight. They, he was using a borrowed ax to do the bill and the, he didn't have the money to pay for the ax head. And he says, alas, master, it's borrowed. And uh, Elijah causes the um, uh, ax head to float. He works a miracle where it floats and he says, reach and take it up and he takes it up. Now that's a miracle that transcends nature. Iron doesn't float. How God did it, we don't know. Was there an invisible hand underneath holding it up? Or did he somehow, uh, we don't know how, that, that's, that's not an intensification of the laws of nature. That transcends them. Doesn't contradict them, but it transcends them. When a plane takes off at the airport and starts flying into the sky, it's not contradicting the law of gravity, it's transcending it. The law of jet propulsion makes use of the law of gravity, but uh, doesn't contradict it. And so when God does a miracle that transcends nature, uh, he's simply working with a higher set of rules that he and his secret council knows about, but he is in no way contradicting nature's laws. Now, that's not true of people like Darius the Mede that we studied about in our Daniel class. In Daniel chapter 6, the laws of the Medes and the Persians were inalterable. And if a king pronounced an official decree, even he couldn't change it. And so remember that the people who were envious at Daniel, high up people in his administration, the presidents and the princes, tricked him into a law that for 30 days it would be against the law for anybody to ask any petition of a god or man except Dio king. They appealed to the good king's vanity, and he had a blind spot and put himself in a tough position, remember? And then when he saw the real purpose of it, they knew that Daniel could only pray to the true God, and when Daniel could not honor that decree, then they turned him in, and Darius said, uh-oh, he realized that he was, the trap was sprung, and he labored. He labored diligently to try to figure a way of having Daniel escape the lions then, but he couldn't. But God worked it out in an even better way, you remember. But Darius, the Mede, tied his hands with his own laws. See, God never does that. He works through natural law, but he can also work through miracles when he sees fit, which is simply, you know, higher laws operating in cooperation with the normal laws of nature.
and common life. Did the miracles in the Bible, now I'm not asking this so much from a biblical standpoint, and I'm not asking this so much from a theological standpoint, I'm asking this largely from an apologetic standpoint. Apologetics is a way of demonstrating the truth of the Christian faith to unbelievers. And um, so I'm asking mostly this from an apologetic standpoint. Because certainly people will often object to what you and I believe. Did the miracles in the Bible really actually happen? Did the miracles in the Bible really actually happen? Or did people kind of make them up so that people could feel good about God and there could be a good moral outcome? Or did they, is this real history? That's what I'm asking. Uh, we certainly believe it is. I guess what I'm looking for is, would somebody elaborate on that? Why do we know these miracles in the Bible were real, true, actual history? Yes, sir, Brother Turner, that's so important. When it comes to historical verification, accurate eyewitness testimony is very important for verifying or falsifying something. Um, historical verification is different from scientific verification. Scientific verification is you have to be able to repeat an experiment, maybe in a laboratory, and show that it always works that way. But history is unique. There might be an event that takes place that'll never be repeated in history. But were there competent witnesses at the time that could establish it as a matter of forever historical record? And uh, I believe that we have tremendous testimonies, as Brother Turner said. I'd like, to, I'd like us to elaborate on that a little bit. Would somebody read for us this is a fairly long passage. Uh, Deuteronomy 11, 1 through 7. Thank you, brother. Therefore thou shalt love the Lord thy God, and keep his charge, and his statutes, and his judgment, and his commandments always. And know ye this day, for I speak not with your children, which have not known, and which have not seen the chastisement of the Lord your God, his greatness, his mighty hand and his stretched out arm and his miracles and his acts which he did in the midst of Egypt unto Pharaoh the king of Egypt and unto all his land and what he did unto the army of Egypt unto their horses and to their chariots how he made the water of the Red Sea to overflow them as they pursued after you and how the Lord hath destroyed them unto this day. And what he did unto you in the wilderness until ye came into this place. And what he did unto Dathan and Abram, the sons of Eli, the son of Reuben, how the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up, and their households and their tents and all the substance that was in their possession in the midst of Israel. But your eyes have seen all the great acts of the Lord which he did. Thank you, Brother Wagner. I appreciate that. 
Notice the setting. Moses, as the leader of his people for the last 40 years, is now in the 40th year of his life. They are east of the Jordan River on the land that Israel tremendously conquered from the kings of the Amorites. They're poised across the Jordan into the Promised Land. Moses is about to go up to Mount Nebo and die and pass the mantle to Joshua. In this solemn setting, he is speaking to some two and a half million people, the entire nation. And he's going back over 40 years and sharing experiences that they as a nation had in common. The dividing of the waters of the Red Sea, the plagues of Egypt, how God sustained them from man in the wilderness, how when uh, Dathan and Abiram rebelled, the earth opened their mouth and swallowed them alive and whole down into the depths. And he refers to this as common knowledge that nobody would question because they're talking about a common experience. Moses will pass off the scene soon, but these messages in Deuteronomy, including this one in chapter 11, uh, which is part of a larger message, it's all duly recorded in a book Moses wrote, Deuteronomy, which was carefully preserved at the time. And uh, at the time, these very events were in the memory of the people and could be verified or falsified if they weren't true. And he appeals to their common experience, puts it down in writing in Deuteronomy, and says, you all know that these amazing, glorious, awesome things happened, and they're part of our early history. Over two million witnesses to them. I know some were born afterwards, but thousands and thousands of witnesses to these things. And he says, your eyes have seen the great acts of the Lord, which he did. He appeals to the common experience. Would somebody read for us 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 to 18, with reference to our Lord's transfiguration? 2 Peter 1, 16 to 18. In as loud a voice as you can muster. Yes, thank you, Dave. Through 18, yes, sir. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables, but we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory. When there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we, when we were with him in the holy mount. Thank you. This wonderful transfiguration experience where Christ is transfigured, his garments become uh, as white as snow, whiter and brighter than any laundry man on earth can make them, uh, uh, brighter than the sun, talking to Moses and Elijah from glory about the exodus that he would accomplish at Jerusalem, this glorious event. 
And Peter says, when we made known this event to you, we were not following cunningly devised fables. We were eyewitnesses of what happened. We heard the uh, voice from the excellent majesty of her own ears when we were with him on that holy mountain. This is amazing history, but nonetheless true because it's so amazing. We were there. We were part of it. We're sharing with you as honest men. And he said, we have not followed cunningly devised fables. And you know what that means? It means there's no need to demythologize the gospels. There is no need to demythologize the gospels. When I say there's no need to demythologize the Gospels, what am I driving at? We have not followed cunningly devised fables. And yet there are liberal New Testament scholars who say the Gospels are full of myth. And we need to demyth them. But if the apostles, when they wrote, the gospel history didn't follow cunningly devised fables. And why should we demyth de the gospels if there are no myths in there in the first place? And if a person gives his life at some college or university to teach students how to demythologize the gospels when there's no myths to take out of them, it seems to me there's no purpose for that job and they should all be fired or let go which would be a whole lot better than letting them stay in their present position and do all the damage that they're doing. Amen. A leader in New Testament scholarship in terms of how the world looks at New Testament scholarship is a man named Rudolf Bultmann. And he was a pioneer in a field of study in the New Testament that's called demythologizing. And they can use good sounding words, but in a very terrible way. Bultmann would say, and has many followers who follow him more or less, most are not as radical as he, but uh, he has great influence. And a uh, professor at the University of Marburg in Germany for many years, he was. And Bultmann said that Jesus of Nazareth was a person he would call the Jesus of history. Now, I believe Jesus is historical, if you let me define the terms, but we don't mean by that what Bultmann meant. He meant the Jesus of history was a very simple Jewish teacher who influenced people and tried to help them but there wasn't anything miraculous about him or terribly unusual. He was a simple Jewish rabbinic teacher who made a good impression. But Bultmann said that when the people who told the gospel story would tell it, to make it more exciting and to get Jesus across to them better, they would add a lot of myths. Now, myths, according to Boltmann, are not things that happened in history. They're a way of recreating the history so you can see what a person through faith would see. And so he would say, 
all kinds of myths were added, like he was God, he was born of a virgin, he did miracles, he rose from the dead. But we all know as modern natural men, these things don't happen. But they define revelation as encounter. And what they say is, when God encounters you in some kind of a great subjective experience, you are able to see things about Jesus that people didn't see before. They apply it to the Old Testament too. If you were back in Old Testament times, there would be some political and social reasons for how some of the Israelites got out of Egypt. And they would be maybe interesting, but very, you know, normal politics. But there was somebody back there who was a man of faith, and he said there's something beside these normal politics. God is bringing them out. But how do I convey to the average person what I see by faith? So you retell the history and put miraculous elements in it. And they crossed the Red Sea and the Egyptians followed them and they were drowned and, and those things didn't really happen. But it's a way of retelling the story so a person who doesn't have faith might be able to somehow see it and get faith. That this was really a great event and God was working, but it never really happened that way. And so uh, they make a distinction between history, which is normal history that doesn't have miracles, and geschichte, holy history, that's mythical history that didn't really happen, but it kind of is a way of rewriting the ordinary history so people can kind of see what faith's supposed to see, that this was special. It's supposed to be very deep, but I think there's a lot of double talk involved. I mean, if it didn't happen, <laughs> yeah, no, what's so special about it? People can see different things. But they said Jesus did these miracles and rose from the dead. And then these stories, after they got elaborated on a lot, they became written down in the Gospels. And what Bultmann said is, what you have in the Gospels is the Christ of faith. He is the Christ that faith pictures through all of these myths that were told about him. Now, Bultmann says that's a good thing, even though it didn't happen in history, because faith believes wonderful things without seeing and evidence. And the mythical recreation is just, the mythological recreation is just the way of... Um, of helping people to picture it better who don't have that faith initially. And so he says, that's a good thing. But all these miracles that Jesus did in the resurrection and the virgin birth, that never happened. So if you, what you have in the gospels is the Christ of faith. How the church came to view him after all these myths were added to the telling of the story of his life over several decades. But if you want to know what the real Jesus was like, the Jesus of history, you've got to demythologize the Gospels, trace how the myths developed, and then work backwards. Take away myth after myth after myth after myth until you get back to the solid historical kernel, which is the Jesus of history. And Bultmann got to the place in his book, Jesus and the Word, where he said, once you demythologize the Gospels, you can't be sure of a single saying or work that Christ did in the Gospels because we're limited historically and able to do that. And fast skepticism came in. Now you might say, this is a radical view. Who would ever hold that? 
I tell you one thing that really got my attention is that when I was studying the interpretation of the New Testament from 1861 to 1961 in one of my classes in the graduate school of Bob Jones University, and I was reading that textbook by Stephen Neal, the interpretation of the New Testament from 1861 to 1961. Neil, who was a fine scholar, made this observation. He said, Rudolf Bultmann, this very radical guy, you would say, who would believe all that? Stephen Neal said that Rudolf Bultmann was probably the most influential New Testament scholar of the 20th century. Beloved, once you get outside of Bible-believing conservative circles, and the Bible's taught as religion in universities or in liberal schools, even though most people are not as radical as Bultmann, the fact that a man like that could have so much influence is horrifying. And the fact that people would spend good money to send their kids to schools like professors who have professors like that to train for the ministry of their denomination is scary. And I don't want to get too technical tonight, but I do want to make the point that all of this talk about demythologizing, there's no need for it. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables. We made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And this radical stuff that happens in the seminaries and graduate schools, it filters down. People get trained under that. It even can come into the churches and mess people up in time. Heard about this man who went to his pastor. And he said, Pastor, I've decided to leave the church. And the pastor said, we don't want you to leave the church. We want you to stay. Can't you tell me what's upsetting you? What's wrong? And maybe we can work something out. We don't want you to leave. Tell me what's wrong. Don't leave. And the man said, I'll be happy to, Pastor. Now, people often have all kinds of crazy reasons for why they don't come to church or why they leave church. And um, pastors can write books on that. But this was a good reason. He said to the man, he said, I've sat under your ministry for 10 years, preacher. And he said, every time you said there was an error in the Bible, or there was a mistake or a contradiction, or we don't believe that anymore, he said, when you said that, I ripped that page right out of my Bible. He said, Pastor, if I sit under your ministry for just a few more months, the only thing that's going to be left of my Bible is the two covers. <laughs> Liberal scholarship is a very bad thing. Notice Peter standing before thousands in Jerusalem in Acts 2.22. Men and brethren, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, which ye yourselves also know. He says, Jesus of Nazareth. Now he's speaking to thousands of people. Some 3,000 of those will get saved at the end of his message. But he's speaking to thousands of people who interacted with Jesus and, and were in the crowds when he did miracles and uh, fed the 5,000 and all of that. And Peter fears no contradiction. Many of those people 
were afraid of the authorities and they were hostile to the Christian message. And yet he could boldly say, Jesus was approved of God by miracles and wonders and signs which he did in the midst of you. And then he puts the ball in their court, as ye yourselves also know. And he had no fear that anybody would say, you don't know what you're talking about. What do you mean? We never saw him do anything like that because he knew everybody had. These miracles are well verified, beloved. And not just the miracles, but all of the history in the Gospels. Notice in Luke's historical prologue, in Luke 1, 1 through 4, these are very reassuring verses. For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth an order, a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they brought them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers, delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were ministers and eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. It seemed good to me also, having had a perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee, in order, most excellent Theophilus, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. Luke 1, 1 through 4. Luke was a very qualified writer. His Greek is beautiful and brilliant. Linguists will tell us. Archaeology has greatly confirmed the history of his writings. He was a top-notch historian. Sir William Ramsey even got saved because as a liberal, he tried to prove Luke wrong and became convinced he was a great historian and got saved in his journey. He was a medical doctor, Luke the beloved physician. He was a traveling companion with Paul on some of his missionary journeys, and he was intimately familiar with leaders in the early church and people who had things happen to him in the Gospels. And he says, I've carefully checked everything out. And what I'm telling you is an accurate narrative of the life of Jesus and all of its wonder and true, truth that you might know, Theophilus, the certainty of those things wherein you've been instructed. Now, when you look at all the religions in the world, you look at all the cults, and people who are really experts might make statements like, there were 25 new cults that sprung up in Japan this year. Uh, when you look at all the major religions that are pretty well known, like Islam and Buddhism, and you look at some of the major cults like Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and Christian Science, but then hundreds of cults in different countries, some offshoots of the other. You could be an expert and not keep up with them all. And the question is, with all of these different views, is there a true religion and what is it? And I believe the question can come down to a very simple matter. In the midst of all the religions and philosophies and ideologies and isms and cults in the world, why do we believe that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life? And there's none other name other heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. That only Christianity is the one true world religion. Well, I think you can boil it down into a very simple question. Even if you've never studied the hundreds of different cults in Japan and the many different movements in America or England. And the question is simply this. Was Luke an honest man who was in a good position to tell us 
what he knew? Or was he a terrible liar and deceiver? And I just can't believe how out of his way he went to make something that was so false sound so true. It really boils down to that. Luke assures us that there were well-authenticated accounts that were undertaken by those who were eyewitnesses and witnesses of the word. He says there's good reason that we Christians believe most surely the great truths of our common faith. He says, I've searched out from the very beginning carefully all that's happened, and I'm now going to present it to you in an organized, orderly fashion, and in such a way that you might know the certainty of those things, Theophilus, in which as a young convert you've been instructed. Here's a man who's a doctor, a great historian, great with the Greek, an eyewitness of some of the events he records in Acts, had access to eyewitnesses, puts together a very beautiful and accurate account, backed up by archaeology. And he says, this is absolutely true. He did those miracles. He rose from the dead. He spoke like no other man spake. He was transfigured. Now, either Luke is a terrible liar and has no idea what he's talking about. But I think you would be hard-pressed to prove that. But you can accept his testimony at simple face value. This is an accurate account of what happened in the life of Jesus and in the early church in the book of Acts. And if you accept that as an accurate account, it shows that Jesus is the incarnate Son of God, the Savior of the world, did miracles, rose from the dead, master of every situation, spoke like no other man spoke, and could give peace and life to the heart that nobody in history ever could. And that settles the question of what's the only true religion, very simply, it's Christianity. You don't have to study all the isms and cults necessarily. Most experts don't know what they all are or what they all say. But if you accept Luke's historical prologue, that here is a man who knew what he was talking about, now we believe he said that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but if he was just speaking as a godly scholar and a, and a convinced Christian, and a man of integrity, and a professional man. He's assuring us these things are really true, and I know what I'm talking about. And if you can accept that basic testimony, that settles forever the question of which religion is true, because it carries with it everything that's written in Luke and Acts and in related documents. I think that's kind of neat, and I don't want to be simplistic, but I think sometimes it's good to be simple. In Mark 2, 1 through 12, remember when they let down the uh, paralytic through the roof because there was such a big crowd they couldn't even come through the door, remember that? And Jesus, when he sees their faith, says, son, your sins are forgiven you. And remember the uh, Pharisees and the scribes were horrified. Who is this that can forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. See, their logic was, only God can forgive sins. Jesus isn't God, and therefore he blasphemes when he says he can forgive sins. But their minor premise was wrong. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus is God, therefore Jesus can forgive sins. But to show them that, Jesus appeals to a very interesting argument. He says, to show you 
that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. I say unto thee, rise, take up thy bed and walk. To show you that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. And he says, and he frames it this way, which is easier to say? Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, rise, take up thy bed and walk. He puts that test to them. Now, it's true that it's a harder work to forgive a sin of somebody's heart than it is to even perform a physical miracle. Christ understood that. But that's not the point he's making. He's saying, which is easier to say? I've just said that man's sins were forgiven. I'm about to prove that I have the authority of God to say that because now I'm going to raise him from the dead. I'm not raise him from the dead, but raise him to health. And the bed that carried him, he'll carry out. In other words, he appeals to the clear eyewitness evidence with so many people around, they man couldn't even get in the door to get to Jesus, except he were let down through the roof. Which is easier to say? Anybody could say, your sins are forgiven. How would anybody know how to verify that? That's a secret matter of God's working in the heart. But everybody could tell whether you knew what you were talking about when you said, rise, take up your bed and walk to a paralytic. And uh, if he didn't get up and walk, nothing before had made him do that, you'd have egg all over your face and be discredited, which is easier to say. But that you may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins, he said unto the man on the bed, rise, take up thy bed and go to thy house. And the people went, wow, as he walked through the crowd. What I'm trying to underscore here is we have good, solid evidence in the New Testament record for these miracles of Jesus, and that should encourage us. The Bible records the great acts of God as the plain facts of history. The Bible documents the divine. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Our faith is founded on fact. That should be very encouraging in a world that so minimizes Christ and marginalizes Christianity and tries to beat up on us and say, what ignoramuses we are. There are good reasons to believe the gospel record. And God helps us do that. Any questions or comments about what we tried to cover so far? Yes, ma'am. Yes. When, when you read what Luke says in his historical prologue in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 of Luke, and from what we know about Luke, he wrote beautiful Greek. He was the beloved physician, Colossians 4.14. An amazingly accurate historian. Archaeology supports him in amazing ways. Um, he was a traveling companion of Paul. He moved in circles where he would beat Peter and other people and Mary and verify accounts and get firsthand information. He was a man of integrity according to church tradition and history. He died as a martyr for his faith, a man of integrity and sincerity and uh, deep commitment who would, rather, who would rather die than lie. Who would rather die than lie. And here he's telling us, I was in a very good position to carefully check out what I'm writing to you about the life of Christ. 
and I put all of my personal and professional reputation on the line, that these things are true and you can count on the Theophilus. Now, either we accept his testimony, which he gives us at the very beginning of his book, and if that testimony is true, it settles the question forever, what's the one true world religion? It's Christianity, because the one he tells about fulfilled prophecy, was born of a virgin, rose from the dead, did miracles, uh, was God in the flesh, and has changed the course of history. To get away from that, you've got to say that Luke was a liar. He had no idea what he was talking about. He was all messed up. But I think that that would be a very tall order, Jan, to prove in the light of that remarkable historical prologue and Luke and Acts that follow. The prologue's all one sentence in the original Greek indicating that Luke was very good at writing in a classical Greek model when he wanted to. Um, and when you ask the question, what's the one true world religion? And the evolutionists will say this, and you'll have all these debates and all of that, and people will always say, this is what I think, or I believe this, or I dabble in that. And sometimes people's heads can spin when you look at all the views and all the different opinions. And I think it's kind of refreshing to just say, we can make it simple. If what Luke wrote in his prologue is true, Christianity is established forever as the one true world religion. And we can rejoice in that. Oh, there are a lot of other things we could look at to back that up, but uh, that's a great starting point. So, so that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Any other questions or comments? I wanted to take quite a bit of time with these two questions because I think they're so encouraging and so important. We'll try to move at a faster pace beginning next week. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and we want to encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.